Welcome to the Sunday Long Read Podcast. My name is Don Van Natta. A quick note, we had some technical difficulties with our sound quality this week, but please stick around because it's a great conversation. Seymour Hirsch, forthright, relentless, and tirelessly curious, is as iconic a reporter as there is. His career of some 60 years includes stints at the New York Times and the New Yorker, among others. He's won a record five George Polk Awards, along with two National Magazine Awards and a Pulitzer for exposing the My Lai Massacre in Vietnam, which he did as a freelancer. And that's just scratching the surface. Hirsch's new book, his 11th, is out now, and it's called Reporter, the perfect title for a memoir written by a reporter's reporter, who at the age of 81 is still kicking ass. Welcome to the SLR podcast, Cy. Ah, I'm glad to be here. Cy, I love Reporter. It's a riveting read, but I understand you didn't really want to write a memoir. Why not? I'm not done. <laughs> I got a, I, I've been, you, you know, uh, Don, the whole trick, and I, I'm not telling you, telling anything you don't know, the whole trick in this business is you find people as you go through, I've been, as you say, I've been, I've been in Washington, let's see, since 65, you know, 3,000 years or something like that. You find people, you, when you find people in the intelligence community, uh, in the military, who, when they take their oath of office, it's to the Constitution, not to a general, not to a president. When you find somebody like that, uh, you, you stay with them. And so um, I have people that I've talked to for years, and a lot of them end up in very interesting places and stay in interesting places. So I still get information. And I still want to do it. And the only reason I'm doing a memoir is because my, uh, the other sort of rule you have is the source is always first, protecting the sources. I, I did, I was working for the New Yorker for a long time and around 2010, when Obama got in, um, I, I moved on uh, and decided to do, do a book on Cheney because I had written a lot about Cheney and uh, was writing a very small amount of what I could, I was talking to people who were there, you know, in a sense, um, I have to be fuzzy about that stuff. But anyway, um, and I, 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 uh, I had thousands of pages of notes and I, I had another story that I wanted to write, a, a sort of a book. <laughs> I did. I spent three years and my publisher's money doing it and um, started giving chapters to people. And this was at the height when um, Obama was prosecuting people. If you remember Jim Risen's, uh, uh somebody who was a source, a CIA fellow, ended up getting, what, 18 months in jail, I think he served, something like that. And so everybody said, you can't, you can't go public now. And uh, so I was stuck and I went to my publisher two years ago, it would have been maybe uh, 20 months ago. And I said, okay, fellas, uh, let's see, what am I going to mortgage? You know, what are my children? Maybe, but I owe you a lot of money and I'm not doing the book. And um, it was Knopf and Sonny Mehta and John Siegel, who'd worked for many years at the Times also was an editor of, uh, he was the editor of Quadrangle Books, the Times publication. Siegel was the editor and he's a great editor. And they said, do a memoir. And my agent pushed me to do it. And so I said, yes, and guess what? I sort of liked it. It's fun writing about yourself, but the downside is everything I thought I remembered, I remembered wrong. <laughs> so, yo. <laughs> and how did you handle that? Well, what happened is I had things that you'll never forget. There's moments in your life, you know, there's that I remember the dialogue verbatim because I tell the story, but I had to go back and reread all my clips 
and I had saved most of them. And it's amazing, you know, when I, when I worked for the UPI as a kid in South Dakota, and there were, you can find, it turns out, genealogy research people. If you did that, you can find your name in the various papers, that, you know, my name just being on a byline in the South Dakota in papers in Huron or, you know, or even in the Chicago Tribune. And so I could recover some that way. I work for the AP and the AP has a, an amazing good, you have to get to it. It's another level of memory. They actually could come up with copies of my original stories as I filed them on TypeScript. And so I got a lot of the stories that I wrote at the AP when I was in Chicago. Um, I, I was I started there and I got they sent me to New York and I, I got some of those stories, I'd, enough I had saved. And then from then on, it was pretty much gravy. I was writing magazine pieces and books and... and um, um, and you did research, right, Cy? You went to the New York Public Library to find the A.M. Rosenthal papers, right? Explain to us how that happened. Well, that was a break. Um, um, well, you're a colleague. You know, you wrote a book with Jeff Gerth. You know, Jeff's a terrier. Jeff just gnaws at stuff. <laughs> More like, a, you know, <laughs> oh, uh, some sort of muskrat. <laughs> he just gnaws at information. Jeff somehow found out that uh, A. Rosenthal's second wife, I think it was his second, it wasn't his first anyway, um, uh, was angry at the time since I, for whatever reason, instead of doing what all, all when he died, she had, she controlled his papers at the estate. She didn't give it to the Times archive. She took it to the New York Public Library. I think it's called the Lannan Connection. And Jeff told me about it. And so one day, one in New York, I just went there and introduced myself and, and they were very courteous and polite. They brought out file after file, and I stayed there for a long time because it was amazing how much stuff that was uh, that in Abe's file about the stories that uh, I did, particularly some stories I did with Jeff about or, about uh, corporations. It was amazing how much stuff that was there that we had not seen. In other words, well, that's another story. What well, it's all fine to you know go after the government when you go after corporations and they then write letters from their fancy lawyers and the, the, the CEO write letters to the publisher and, and those were not shared with me or with Jeff. I was working with Jeff then. Well, you hired Jeff back in the 1970s and I should just say here that we're right. talking about Jeff Gerth who was a Pulitzer Prize winning New York Times reporter for about 30 years. He also is the co-author of a book that uh, I wrote back in 2007, a biography of Hillary Clinton called Her Way. You hired Jeff initially, Cy, to investigate a low-profile L.A. lawyer named Sidney Korshak, a shadowy but influential organized crime figure. And I love how you describe in your book that you first met Gerth in Berkeley, California, playing the piano in the middle of a sunny afternoon, and that you quickly surmised, as you put it, that the kid had it. Now, Jeff is exactly 20 years older than me, so it's nice to hear someone else call him a kid. The two of you aggressively and relentlessly take months to investigate Korshak until he finally calls you, speaking softly and accusing you of having slandered him, quote, from one end of the country to the other, end quote. And in Reporter, Cy, you write, quote, Mr. Hirsch, he said, let me ask you, why are you interested in me? You are a specialist in writing about mass murders with blood-filling ditches. He talked for a few more minutes about blood, death, mayhem, slaughter. It did not take me nearly that long to get the drift. He had threatened me without doing it. I was rattled and impressed, close quote. 
Sai, I love that line. What other targets of your reporting rattled and impressed you? <laughs> he was one. First of all, I called, you know, I had the inside number. And uh, uh, Jeff and I had found various people in Los Angeles. Uh, I've never seen a city that was as wired up as what Los Angeles was with illegal wires. I guess Miami Beach would be another place where the mob was working. Um, remind me to tell you about that. But anyway, well, what happened is one day I was, I went, I, I was doing some reporting and I happened to go uh, interview the, uh, the U.S. attorney down there. And we had a good time. It was after hours. And he said, ah, let me show you something. You know, we were talking about some organized crime stuff. He said, let me show you something. <laughs> and he took me, uh, took me on an elevator. It was a, about a 12-story building in downtown Miami. And he took me to a big room with, you know, movie, you know, how a movie is rolled up into a big uh, a, a disc after disc and file. He said, these are all the dirty wires we had on the mob. None of them we can use legally. <laughs> I, I'm telling you, I thought to myself, this is another city. But uh, anyway, the bottom line is, I mean, the feds and cops, you know, what can I tell you? They have a lot in common. <laughs> and so we did, we did Korshak together and we had a great time. They were all after us and it was all sorts of trouble. And the Times hated the story. What I think about my business is sort of funny. Uh, I, I, at the AP and at the New York Times and at the New Yorker, I basically was shoved out and with unceremoniously. The AP reassigned me from the Pentagon after complaints by uh, Wes Gallagher, who was then the general manager of the AP, from, from uh, Robert McNamara, that psychotic liar who ran the agency for years. And, you know, lied for five or six years. His boys were dying at two th by 67, 68, 2,000 a week. He's lying about deaths. He could have stopped a lot of deaths. Anyway, I, and you know, I don't, I have no, no mercy for him, but I figured that out while I was covering it, which is okay. Anyway, the bottom line is um, at the AP, I got in trouble and they re they didn't fire me, but they reassigned me from the Pentagon to Health and Human Services. <laughs> I got the drift. And then at the but Sai, you say you got in trouble. What for telling the truth? They didn't want to hear. You were just doing your job. Of course. What else do you get in trouble? What else do you get in trouble for? What else? You know. But I was just going to say at the at the New York Times the same thing for different reasons and all. Anyway, the bottom line is I like the I like the I like the <laughs> one of the problems is the stuff we don't want to hear. Look at it this way. I, 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 with Jeff and I in this case, but in, earlier in my career, in my own case, I'm constantly walking to editor's offices and throwing a dead rat full of lice on their desk. Maybe he's still alive and, and moving and saying, okay, here's what I want to do. Uh, it's going to cost you, you know, 60 to a hundred thousand bucks plus my salary. I may not get it because one out of two out of five times, 40% maybe I didn't get stories at the, at the New Yorker. Anyway, I would spend months on stuff that I didn't publish. And let's see what else. Oh yeah, you're gonna get you're gonna get attacked by everybody, including lawyers are gonna sue you and threaten to sue you. You're gonna lose subscribers. It's it's gonna be one nightmare. But that's what I want to do. <laughs> that's the job. Well, you know that's exactly the way it is. It is, and it's great fun, and it's a great privilege. Well, you know, it's it is. I just have to tell you in the book that one of the things that I love is Bill Kovitch, who you must have known pretty well. Who's a, a wonderful, you know, I always like Bill, as straight as an arrow, hot-tempered, wow, Armenian, real hot-tempered guy. Anyway, he used to get, if he got mad at you, you knew it. There was no, there was no suppressed rage. Anyway, 
He was quoted in the book by somebody, he'd given an interview about the trouble with size. He kept on wanting, giving these guys in New York stories that there was nothing wrong with the stories, but they wanted a second day story in it. Somebody else should publish it, then they'd have a real good second day. <laughs> that's what they wanted. They want to be second with a good story. That's, that's not always true, but I, mean, I felt that way so many times in my career. Yeah, because it gives them cover. I felt that way at the times in the 16 years I was there. I mean, not always, but there were moments when I felt that way, that the editors just didn't mind being second. It's safer. There's a safety to it to follow somebody else's work, right? Well, and also if it's a better story because they had it first. <laughs> Do you know, I, I talked to a network guy um, recently, and he said that phenomenon happens there too. You know, there are, look, network people, they're paid, real dollars, unlike us, even though it's a little better. I think I was, when I was at the New York Times breaking all those stories, I was making 28000 a year. I mean, it was a lot more than I was. I was making 8000 at the AP. I mean, $130, uh, 9000 maybe. So those are the, that was way back in the ancient days in the 70s. But uh, I can understand very good reporters for a network because they're making, you know, huge dollars. But the same problem, they get a good story and they end up having to sort of spin it off to some newspaper guy and then pick it up. Uh, it's really funny. Sai, I'm curious, how do you get people to trust you to tell you their secrets? How do you do that? You know, the cliche is I say to them, I'm going to beat the crap out of you. I'm going to threaten you and I'm going to really go after you. And I'm, you know, that I'm going to threaten some cabinet guy or a three-star general. One thing is you, you read before you write. So you impress them by what you do. When I got to the Pentagon in 65 for the AP, the war was on. I had no credentials to start going after the war. Uh, what I did is I found a number of wonderful issues that were in their own way important and critical. One of the big issues I glommed onto was pilot retention because the Navy was having a terrible time. Somebody tipped me off about this and I, I ended up talking to senior admirals and you know, pilots in in the armed forces, the, the Navy air is Navy air, Marine air is Navy air, and who cares what else exists? If it's on the ground or in the water, nobody cares, but if it's in the air, you know, they care. So I, I dealt with a bunch of guys who happened to work for McNamara, uh, who were working on the problems they were having, keeping pilots. Pilots were bailing out. They were spending a million dollars training a pilot, and they were bailing out because they were bombing. It was asymmetrical bombing. They would go and get all sorts of flak and, and uh, uh, missiles thrown, thrown at them. And the target was, let's say, a rail line that they would hit. And uh, the video, the intel, you know, when they looked at the intel report, then within three hours, they were, the, the Vietnamese had spread out little. T I went to North Vietnam in 72 and I saw them. They, this is at, at a, uh, before the big offensive. I, they had every 500 yards, they had little squads of people with a lot of rail and a lot of dirt. And their bomb would come, and once the bombing was over, they'd run to the hole, clean it up, fill it with sand and dirt, and put the rails, new rails back in. So, you know, they, and but that was the kind of issues I did. I did a bunch of issues on pilot retention. I did a lot of stuff with the Congress, the Armed Services Committee on issues. And so I would write stuff that was, you know, I'm, I'm a good reporter. I write good stuff about it. And I caught McNamara in a couple of lies about the stuff. So people began to say, okay, you can trust this guy. You know, he's and the other thing I've always done is when I have a bad story as much as possible, it's not always possible. But if I have a bad story, I call up people and tell them, you know, even I tried to do it with Kissinger, who's such a liar. 
But there was a, one time in one of my early stories when I joined the New York Times in 72 was about a general who bombed North Vietnam and had been cashiered and nobody could find him. I'm going to tell you. Uh, the Washington Press Corps could not find his name was Jack Lavelle. He was the head of the 7th Air Corps and he was cashiered in 72 for allegedly bombing targets in North Vietnam without orders. That made no sense to me because I know the only guy that would have ordered him to do that would have been Kissinger and Nixon. Don't ask me how I knew it. It was just a gestalt I had. You know, that seemed, wow, back channel. Kissinger by then, he was the big double dealer or never in front of anything. And nobody could find him. And so I was at the New York Times. I'd just been hired and I had a free hand by Abe Rosenthal. He wanted me to go to Washington and make trouble. And I did. I had a free hand. And, and so <laughs> how did I find him? He had been a four-star general for years. He had had five different jobs as a three-star and a two-star. And each job in the phone books that for whatever base and whatever, even in the Pentagon phone books. So then we had great phone books. He had an aide who was a captain. And, you know, and by the time I got to a bunch of aides, they, they had gone to a, a senior officer schools and they were maybe serving in a, even overseas. But many of them were in the Washington area and they're all in the phone book. And eventually the third guy I called said, his name was Jack Lavelle. He said, oh, yeah, I love Jack. I worked for him a year and, you know, and now I'm just going to be a colonel soon. And I said, well, where do you find him? He said, what do you mean? Where do you find him? He always plays golf out at so-and-so club <laughs> every day. So I found the guy hitting golf balls. <laughs> he, put his, he put his two sons, he was with his sons on a driving range. He put him in the car. One of the kids wrote me later. I think I included a letter in my book about it. So... <laughs> <laughs> we go and I say to him, let's go get a beer in the clubhouse. So we get in the beer. And I remember it was Miller Lite. Do you remember Miller Lite used to have nice cold bottles? White, they were on, on clear bottles of Miller Lite beer. It was great. So we each have a Miller. And neither of us, are, we're just drinking it from the bottle because it tastes so good. It's a hot day. And so I started the interview. And this is something you just do. You just do it. You just, oh, what the hell? I said, okay, General, let's assume you did everything that you, you were accused of doing. Here's my question to you. Why in hell weren't you court-martialed? And he laughs and he says to me, I kid you not, he said, son, when was the last time a four-star general ever got court-martialed? And we we're off to the races. I understood him and he understood me. And so, you know, next thing you know, he's, he's telling me stuff on background that I, I trusted and I never wrote. But I knew then that Kissinger had to do it. I, and then, you know, the tapes came out. And the, the wonderful tapes that came out, the Nixon tapes, what's wonderful about it, they were very worried. I, I ran Jack. I ran Lavelle up a light pole. He was going to, he was in big trouble by the time I got done writing about him. And Nixon, you know, it was a big issue. And the tape show that Nixon kept on asking Kissinger, we've got to protect this guy. He did what we wanted. You know, it's terrible. And Nixon would say, some people suffer. That's the way it is, Mr. President. <laughs> and the thing that's so wonderful about it, not wonderful, it's just, it's, it's so damn ridiculous because so finally, in the end, after working on the story for a long time, I'm writing a whole story about what he did, what he bombed. And he's helped me. He's told me stuff. And this is a big story for the New York Times. It's going to be a big front page story that's going to lead to hearings and questions about who's running what. And it's a good it's a story that's more important than the story. You know, there are such things, stories that are more important than the story. It shows that there's a complete breakdown when a four star general is bombing the north and everybody claims they don't know. Are you kidding me? And meanwhile, I'm learning from kids that they all knew it and they were reporting it. That's, that was my next series of stories. Uh, the kids tried to report it, were told no. Anyway, so, but what I did that morning, they asked me to come to New York to read a proof. Uh, and it was smart of the times. And I came to New York 
Um, I was in Washington then, and I'm at, the, I'm at the foreign desk reading a proof carefully, making some changes, and I figured, what the hell, I called them up at home. I said, I want to read this to you, Jack, because you're not going to like it. So I start reading it to him. I get up, he said, well, hold on, after about two minutes. He said, you don't have a right. I said, well, tell me, that's why I'm calling you. He said, okay, you, you had a list of targets I bombed without authority. You forgot the POL, the petroleum and oil. You forgot that also about how we, the game we played with their radars. You know, the way we weren't supposed to touch radars, but we would, we would do things in advance to light them up and then we could hit them. But that's America. They will do that. Speaking of sources and high places, what do you think of the White House coverage these days? Are you kidding? <laughs> First of all, why don't you just look at some statistics? Forget about what I think. I'm just going to tell you what's known. He's gone up seven or eight points in the last two months. So that's from 40 to 48. You know, eight points is, what is that, about a 20% jump in the last two months of the continuing vitriol against him. <laughs> I mean, he can't say, you know, he's he's an all-time liar, which he, of course, <laughs> you know, I don't think he understands what a lie is. And he's the all-time con man and, and what you call it. And, it's, and so here's what it is. Hating Trump for liberals in New York and California and Chicago, the major, particularly in New York, for the new, you know, and for the hating Trump for the cable people, for the New York Times and the Washington Post is catnip for ratings. It's just catnip. I mean, you can't. You go to CNN, MSNBC. You damn well begin every hour with, "Here's what Trump did today and why we all hate him." And 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 of course, that means that if you are a Trump guy, well, you tune them out and you go to the Fox News. So everybody, there's, and the same with the, I think the Times and the Post have gone way overboard in the hostility. Uh, Trump is, <laughs> first of all, um, uh, he's been, my take on him is, I, he, he's, I don't think he's dumb. I, I think he's primitive. I'm sorry, he's president. He's picked the worst cabinet in history. <laughs> they all share the same thing. They're, what you see is what you get. Uh, there, there's going to be no tape recordings of Trump like with Nixon, in which in private he's with his two martinis going on about uh, niggers and kikes and wops, you know, like he used to. You're not going to have that and then come out as the, the noble Christian. What you see is what you get. He's all impulse. I think you're never going to get, my personal guess is, Mueller's having a hell of a time getting anything he can indict. You have to have mens rea, you have to have understanding, and you have to have. Um, 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 for, for, you know, for, for, for any, any act that involves coordination, you know, or what they, they, you know, for dealing with the Russians and, and, um, you need to have an understanding that you take step A to impact step two. He's incapable. He's incapable of taking that second step. He just, it's all visual. When you said earlier that Trump is like catnip to reporters, if Hillary Clinton had won, do you agree that it would have been extremely bad for business for the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the television networks? What, what I can say is it's more than what a catnip, by that I mean, Trump, Trump, bad, bad, Trump every day has driven up the ratings for, for MSNBC and CNN in, in, in incredible ways. They're making tons of money. It's every three months the New York Times tells us, which is a leader in the anti-Trump stuff, I'm embarrassed to say. I don't think their coverage... Look, there's a lot of very good reporters at the New York Times, and they do a lot of wonderful stuff. There's a lot of takeouts that I read on other issues. But I must say, the daily chasing of Trump, they haven't figured him out. They haven't figured out he may be a step ahead of them. And um, 
And and what in the New York Times every three months they come out with another two hundred thousand dollar more two hundred thousand more readers online, and you know they are a powerful online presence. Really, I, I, there was a story done by, about me the other day that was online, and boom, I knew about it within minutes. You know, once it was up, you know, it's a very powerful section, and it's a and it's it's a commercially viable section. And so he's been wonderful for them. I can't, I can't begin to un guess what would happen if Hillary had been there. I think we might be in more trouble overseas than we are now with Trump. Trump does things like saying, why do we have 26,000 American troops in Korea? <laughs> well, because they've always been there, sir. Well, what does it cost? <laughs> I know he's, he can't figure out, if, he's the first guy actually to say, hey, I can, so I understand, to say, well, explain Afghanistan to me. We've been doing this for 18 years. It doesn't seem I mean, one spectacle that's spared, I must say, the last couple of years. The spectacle of every year some poor two-star army guy going before Congress and testifying how the training is made. We're going we're gonna to stand up the Afghan army and we're going to stand up the Iraqi army. That's, they've given that up. They don't even testify anymore about it because, you know, they'll, they'll build a base for the Afghan army and the next day all the plumbing is gone. <laughs> Sai, <laughs> what is the biggest difference today in how journalists operate compared to when you were at the New York Times? Well, the biggest difference, it seems to me, is that when the CIA or the White House says, um, we have high confidence that uh, Saddam has WMD, <laughs> they believe it. Sai, I want to ask you about access. Do you think reporters trade access for integrity these days? <laughs> Uh, what? That's the definition. That's the definition. Yeah, uh, uh, the, the only thing that made me successful is when I was hired by Abe Rosenthal, it was understood I had no access. <laughs> I just had people that would talk to me, but I had no access to anybody at the top. I mean, I ended up having, I ended up having, a, a, what, there were occasionally people who would figure out that they could deal with me and not be mauled, but most were afraid. But there was a history written. I read about it in the book uh, by the, a, a very good historian, actually a good former, he was an operations officer at the CIA, wrote a history of Colby, and there's a whole chapter on me. And among the things, it showed I did have a lot of access to Colby and people like that. And I, but, you, you, but the notion that you're going to cover a beat, and if you're, if you're covering the White House, I mean, you, you have to be able to get to the president and his deputy and in this, in, I don't know what ha passes for coverage in this house, but you have to be able to get the people in the White House who know they can tell you something and you'll effectively report it. And that's, that's trading access for, for reporting. That's how you become it, a good reporter. And, uh, and you also know if, you're, if you start writing stuff that's too, or too off the line, you're going to get cut out. And for a network, the worst thing is to be a little too sharp and not get the president for a Christmas interview, end of the year interview. That was the worst in the thing. Or same, or what the real bad thing was, I remember this. I wrote a book about Kissinger. It was published in 83. And it didn't matter for the next 10 years or 20 years, or as before the previous 10 years, the biggest deal for uh, a major newspaper or a major network uh, was at the annual White House Correspondents' Dinner to get Kissinger at your table. The fact that I wrote about him basically said he lied, like most people think, made no difference. You know, they still wanted to get Kissinger at their table. That was the that was the that was the get that they needed. I, I'm doing something. I've been doing something for two years on what I'm just talking about. For two years, I've been watching and reporting on something 
dealing with go back I go back to the spring of 2016 and I'm reporting consistently I've been doing it for two years got huge files on it I don't know I'll do something with it eventually whether I'll be able to publish it in a mainstream place you know I can always go overseas um, but I want to publish it here and I might have to do a book uh, to do it which, which is more than I want to do but I might have to but you know there, there's, a, there's a huge story there that they're just missing and that they, they want to miss at this point because to, to do do it right they have to they they lose some of the catnip. I know you're not going to tell me, so I'm not even going to ask you. No, I'm not going to tell you. You know, I'm, you don't even want to ask me. But keep on going. I was going to ask you anyway. One of the things that I was really struck by in your book, Cy, is that you talk about cowardly editors, and you have all these famous and infamous fallings out with editors and leaving places, and you made reference to it earlier in our discussion. Who's the most gutless editor you work for? Well, the the biggest problem, and I'm, I was more, look, by the way, some of the editors I fell out with are good editors. I fell, I used to fight with A. Rosenthal like crazy. Uh, Dave Remnick and I had a big disagreement after Obama got in because I, I just thought, you know, David, uh, David would say I'm not his friend, but he'd go to lunch, and I didn't like that. And so we had a falling out, and that affected, uh, you know, how he looked at me and, and how I looked at him. But I still think he, you know, he's still a friend and he's a very good editor. And um, uh, when I went back to Hanoi, I went back, when I went back to, um, I was asked by my, my kids have been after me for years and my wife, and you know, as I said, my dog, the cat, the gerbils, the mice, <laughs> all those various pets we've had all wanted me to go back to Milai or go to Milai. I'd never been there. So I went there in, in 2014. I did a visit and the, the only place I would publish it, even though we had all these disagreements about some other things would be at the New Yorker because Remnick's a great editor. He would make me, he would keep up, I wouldn't be that mawkish about what I wrote. And he was, he's, he's superb that way. Although we had disagreements and, you know, big deal. Uh, I, I have respect for him, I have respect for Abe. The real problem I had was with the business desk. Dave, Jeff and I had terrible problems when we began writing about corporations at the New York Times. Uh, in, Jeff and I did a piece uh, together on Korshak that bothered everybody at the Times because he hadn't been indicted. And there was a, we, but we did fine with that. We, we got that through. And then we worked for six months. We worked for three or four months together before we went to the Times about Gulf and Weston, before we had enough to go and make a presentation that we've got to do this. And they had no choice. You know, I was, you know, I was in New York and I was a star. There's no way they were going to say I couldn't do it. And so they let us do it. And with uh, mixed emotions. And later when I went and looked at the papers and online at the New York Public Library, the Lannan Papers collection, there was, I mean, uh, we were being knifed by the editor of the business page. A guy, you know, there was, Abe had a thing with me. One of his things with me was you know, too many anonymous pejorative sources. <laughs> and uh, we had terrible fights about it. And I'd say, you know, this isn't, you know, you can't, he once gave a dicta, and I guess I was there in 77, some dicta. Uh, uh, side story today, just too much. From, you've got to cut back on the un, un, unattributed negative uh, comments, even though in this case, one of them came from Brzezinski and stuff like that. They were really good sources. That isn't the point. And so the next story I did, I went and checked the proof. Every quote I had that was anonymous was taken out. So I... <laughs> so I run into Abe's office and I said, I just walked in, I don't know what he was doing. And I said, he'd had some surgery and he had a cane on the wall or knee, he had a bad knee. And I said, what are you doing? Do you, did you see this proof? Did you see what you do? Do you understand, you know, when you tell these little wimps on the desk, 
you know, they can't make a differentiation. This is like working for Pravda, I said, or Hansu. I named the paper, the print, the paper, the daily paper in in uh, in in uh, in Cuba. La Prensa, I think, whatever it was. This is like, he, he said, are you calling me a communist? And with his bad leg, he started running after me and he grabbed his cane. He was going to hit me with the goddamn cane. So I, in the middle of the newsroom, I'm running out of the office and this guy is chasing me with a cane. But he was wrong and he did let it, he, he didn't change the rule. But he would say things like that. And the cowards at the desk, they were so, it was such a fear dominated place you know uh, um, uh, the, the uh, one of the guys who later became executive editor of the paper was a lovely guy it doesn't matter who he, he he was all open and ready to be open this is after Abe and he, he uh, I went to have a cup I wasn't there but I was in New York and I stopped by to have a cup of coffee with him or whatever in his office and just chat and he said one of the things he said with great bitterness he said you know I was ready to be so open but you can't believe what it's like every time I turn a corner every conversation stops it's like I'm the Gestapo or something like that. So it's inevitable. You know, the Times is, the Times, you know, I wrote a lot about the Times. And then I, I it was a love-hate, but, you know, it's, I'm always going to be interested in the Times because there's always, there's always young kids there who are really good. And there's always some very serious stuff. It just doesn't happen to be in sometimes where I want it to be in national security or covering the White House. It's a very good newspaper. I mean, who else? Who, what, at the time, the Washington Post has the money now with Bezos to try and do something, but nobody has the foreign coverage. I just was, I just getting a salad. Um, I, I'm reduced to, um, I uh, had a, I, I'm a tenor, so I wrote, I had tor rotator cuff. Uh, so I, uh, while I, re I'm, I'm fine, I'll be fine, I'll be playing in a couple of months, but while I'm not, I go ride bikes and do exercise, and then I go get a, I eat a lot of grass. <laughs> Somebody once said to me when I complained about, Lunch now is grass. He said, what a waste of grass. He said, I eat salads, no sandwiches. I'm having my sandwich reading the Times. And I'm, I'm just, it was late, 2 o'clock, and I'm reading it, and I'm just impressed by the foreign coverage. We don't get that. It's a, it does good stuff. It's completely, it's going to, it's heading for, maybe I was, I'd like to think they're heading for an embarrassment, as much as they had when they had to say, Write a paper, say we, we 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 screwed up on WMD and we screwed up. I remember they screwed up on the election. We thought Hillary had won. They might have to do something almost bad if the truth ever got out about how screwed up the Democrats were after the election and how how in the tank so many of the press is. This doesn't. I'm not trying to make Trump is a virtuous guy. That's impossible. Trump is, but he also is president. Sai, one of the big groups we have who listen to this podcast are young journalists and young college students. What advice would you give to a journalist just starting out? Oh, my God. Well, obviously, you said it all. You got to read. You got to know what's going on. Uh, if I ever saw, you know, uh, you got to see a lawyer about something, you know, won't kill you to go look at some of his cases and maybe read an argument he made. I mean, it's work. But you go and you say, you know, you, you, you go into somebody like that and you say, well, I was sort of curious about, you know, that was an interesting case. How did it turn out? Something like that. And the guy's already a little bit interested in you. That's all. You do something to cut yourself from the, the pack. And it's hard to do. And on spot news, you don't have time sometimes. You just call the people you don't know and you have to call them up. And of course, you, I always fully identified myself and all that stuff and always was, you know, uh, so far from being in their face I always was as you know just very apologetic for you know but reading before you write 
And you know, if you do a story that's a spot story, and it may have some legs, uh, try and get the desk to let you stay with it. It's very hard. I just gave a talk here. I, I have an office downtown, and the National Press Institute is um, a couple of doors away. And I just I, I've done that a lot. Just go and spend an hour. They have a they have they have groups that come in twenty or thirty for a month long course or something. And I always go try and talk to them as as often as I can, or they want me to. I mean, once a term. And I, I was saying the same thing. I know sometimes you can't do the desk won't let you do it. But not every story is the same. When you find something that's interesting, try and convince the editors to give you three or four or five days to work something on. This is a little, you know, you know what I mean? It's very tough. And even, even, if, even if you're working for a college newspaper, there will be stories that deserve more than just a headline. And, you know, when you, once you do it, stay with it. And it's very hard in a college newspaper, I agree, because, you know, they, they can just cast you aside. The, uh, the you know the management of a college the editors and the, not the editors but the the people who run colleges the professors and faculty people you know they're not interested in the, in, in newspaper coverage <laughs> there may be a malcontent but he's you know he doesn't get tenure <laughs> your advice about when you go see someone having done homework on them beforehand is just so important I think that's worked for me my entire career because most journalists just don't do it. No. And like you said, it buys you instant credibility with that source when you've done homework on them. If you know about a past case, if it's a lawyer, or if you just know some detail about that person's background, it can make the difference. It shows you took the time and the curiosity and it builds you instant credibility, right? Well, it's just you're, it's a, you're showing you have respect for what you're doing. And so the, be, the only thing they can do, there are people here in town that left left the government in, in spots that, that that I'm interested in, and so I'll wait six months and I'll call the office and and I won't get him, but I ask for a secretary and and I will leave a message and saying, you know, just uh, uh, and at the minimum, I, I whatever you do by being nice and communicate, you have some information, not 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 that much, but uh, you get a call back from her saying he's really sorry, but he can't. That doesn't mean he's not going to see me. He's just not seeing me now. And so you always do, you know, it's, it's just human, you know, you know, we just respond, you know, if you've had a pet, you know what it's like, the pet responds. Uh, actually, at some point, I think we're responding to the pet more than the pet's responding to me, but that's another story. You know, I think dogs have it made, you know, they give you that look anyway, neither here nor there. For a crusading journalist, how important is objectivity and fairness? Well, the first thing is you have a point of view don't think you don't i mean you have a point of view you believe in certain things and um but we're professional journalists so i just said on a tv show the other day i said i had root canal and i was some specialist i went to see and when i got in the chair i didn't say to him are you, are you a trump guy or a obama guy i just want to know he could do his job right i feel the same way about our profession you're in, we're entitled to i'm entitled to say i don't like trump but i see a lot of things that aren't are being done that aren't are unfair and, and I also recognize he did win the election, despite the fact that Democrats think they plurality and vote. No, it's, it, it, it is really the, the delegates, folks. <laughs> he won, and uh, fair and square. And, um, and so um, um, I think I've, I've said it, made it pretty clear. Just um, have information. Uh, always be polite. Always let people know who you are and what you're doing. And always tell them what you're, you know, um, uh, if you have a, if you have, I, I've, as I said, I, whenever I have a story that's going to make people unhappy, 
um, uh, this is after I do the interview, I, I, I do call them back before I publish. Uh, and it, it, it helps a lot. It really helps a lot. So they're not surprised, right? They're not surprised. And then the next time you call them, they might say, boy, you were a son of a bitch on that one. What, you, what are you doing? What do you want here? I mean, that's, that, it just works, you know, because mo most people are, mo in, even, you know, every, even at the top of government, you know, they all work. I mean, there's some wackos, you know, that in the government, there's some hardliners, but most of the people who are doing there are just, you know, they're, they're, even in the intel, they're, they're there because they, they have, they believe in something above and beyond. You know, they, they want to work for the government. And by the way, uh, I, when I did Milai, I used to, I, I covered the Pentagon for years, and so I knew a lot of officers, and I'd go cruise around the Pentagon, and after I did the Milai story, I was, you know, I always had a Pentagon pass. I'd find some young colonel who knew me, and he'd say, what did you do that for? And I'd say, hey, my friend, guess what? You know, you may be a, have a, be a bird colonel and, you know, have been in combat, but I'm every, I'm every right, I'm every much as American as you are. Because you're in combat doesn't make you a better American than me. And they would listen to me. They would say, you got that. I got that. I got that. They wouldn't say, screw you. Sai, the footnotes in your book are awesome. I think my favorite <laughs> one is on page 273 about your first meeting with Esther Newberg, who would become your longtime book agent. I'm going to quote you from this footnote because I just love this. You write, quote, Esther and I met for the first time in 1985 over breakfast in Washington. After saying hello, I started yakking about some gossip I had heard, and she interrupted me to say, that's just bullshit. She became my agent for life at that moment, close quote. So my question is, is that the quickest way to your heart, having a great built-in bullshit detector? Well, you know what I said at the end of the book? I don't talk much about my family. I just don't. But I did say I, I thank my family for, you know, we all have mutual love and for also the, they all had the willingness to tell me what I'm totally full of it when I am. Because it's important to have people that say, you know, come on, get off the mountain. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. We all need people to keep us grounded. Sai, we need to wrap up. We have a hard out here, unfortunately. And I know you're a tennis player. You've been sidelined uh, and hurt um, in recent months with a rotator cuff injury. But I just wanted to ask you about your tennis game. And are there any lessons from the tennis court that translate to kick-ass reporting? <laughs> I'll tell you, it's knowing your limits. I, I sometimes play with I, – I can hit a ball. I sometimes play with guys – I'm not, nobody, nobody's ever as good as they think they are. That's the given of that, being tennis and golf. I'm okay in tennis. And I play with guys who are pretty good. And it just for, you know, it just, you know, I can hit the ball back. At, but the rule I have, and this is a, a, a sense of knowing your limits. My rule in playing golf and tennis with a good player is you're not allowed to hit the ball anywhere in the court I haven't been to in 30 years. <laughs> no drop shots. I'll take a slice once in a while, but don't start slicing regularly because I'm not going to go. I'm going to let them bounce twice. <laughs> so know your limits. Thanks, Sai. It's been an honor and a pleasure. Really appreciate it. Anyway, this is fun. I like this because I like talking to reporters. Well, I've loved talking with you, Sai, and thank you again for making the time for us today. You've been listening to the Sunday Long Read podcast. It's the first cousin of the Sunday Long Read newsletter, a compendium of the best long-form journalism of the week. The newsletter drops in your inbox every Sunday morning at 8 a.m. Eastern Time. If you don't subscribe already to the SLR newsletter, you can do so on our website, www.sundaylongread.com 
backslash subscribe. I want to thank my producer, Carrie Barber. She did a tremendous job under very difficult circumstances with this podcast. I also want to give a shout out to my friend and SLR co-pilot, Jacob Feldman. We have a lot of great guests coming up. Please stick with us. We'll be back soon with another fantastic guest. See you soon.